Okay, so here we are, the doctrine of the atonement. What is the atonement? Anybody need an outline? You should have one of these outlines. Anybody need one? Okay. Um, Clyde, thank you for doing the photocopying. Definition, it, the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. I'll explain for a, in a minute why I'm putting the word life in there as well as death. People tend to think of the atonement as what Christ did on the cross, and that is true. That's where the atonement focuses. But I'm going to include Christ's obedience and suffering for his whole life as part of this whole complex of events uh, that we together call the atonement. The cause of the atonement People say, what do you think now? Why, why is it that, um, that Jesus died to pay for our sins? I think most of you would say, well, it's the love of God. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's true. That verse does correctly point to the love of God as a cause of the atonement. It was God's love for his sinful human beings that he had made in his image that was a cause of the atonement. But I think we have to say that there is another factor as well, and that is the justice of God. Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25, in talking about Christ, now follow with me because it's a, it's a densely compacted passage. Romans 3.25 it's talking about Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, I'll come back to that word, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, the word propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Makes him propitious toward us or favorable toward us. So God put Christ forward as a sacrifice to bear his wrath and turn it to favor. By his blood, that's another way of talking about his death, to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Who is Paul talking about here? God had passed over former sins. Okay, okay. In uh, Exodus, at the night uh, before the Exodus, or when the Exodus began, God passed over the homes of the people of Israel who had the blood on their doorposts, so he had passed over the sins of the sinful Israelites and brought them out of Egypt. Okay, who else's sins did God pass over previously? Oh, Adam and Eve, that, was, that would be one. Uh, he clothed them with garments and kind of a, an indication that he had forgiven their sins. Um, anybody else before Jesus' death whose sins had not been punished, but he had forgiven and passed over? Hmm? David, sure, King David. Who else? David talks about the sins forgiven. Moses, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anybody else? Just all the, all of, yeah, Elijah, I mean... Abraham, all, all the people of Israel in the Old Testament who had been forgiven and God hadn't punished their sins. And you see, Paul is saying, and you look back at all that history of the Old Testament, say, wait a minute, Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Wait a minute, 
I, I know that physical death started on that day, but there was a hint that there would be salvation. There was a promise that, this, that, e, that Eve would have descendants, would have a seed or offspring, and, and that offspring would bruise the head of the serpent. Well, that means that there's going to be life going on. And then Adam, Cain and Abel offering sacrifices to God, and God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. Wait a minute. If these are all sinful people, why doesn't God take their life immediately? How can God say, through the Holy Spirit, in the inspired Psalms of David, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom you will not reckon iniquity. You're looking, you're saying, they sinned, they sinned, they sinned. Nobody paid the penalty. God, you are not fair. You see, you see, the, you see there's something going on there that Paul is saying in the Old Testament, God had passed over a lot of sins and he'd forgiven them, but how could he forgive them? Who paid for it? Nobody paid for it. The penalty for sin was supposed to be death. Well, you got death of animals, but they can't substitute for a human being. They're just symbols. So who paid? It wasn't fair. It's, it's, it's like, it's like watching, um, watching a baseball game and the umpire, it's just not, it, it, the, the, the guy's out at home. And the umpire says, you're safe. I mean, it was just obviously out. It's flagrant out. And the umpire says, you're safe. And you say, that's not fair. He's out. Why isn't, why isn't he punished for it by being declared out? And, and uh, oh, Paul's saying there's something going on here. When God passed over those former sins, people could look at that, and God could look at it, and angels could look at it and say, Something's wrong. He passed over these sins and there wasn't any penalty. But now it shows that God is righteous when Jesus died. Because he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That tells us that, the, that Jesus dying for our sins shows us that it was not only the love of God that led to the atonement, it was the justice of God that required that a punishment for sin be paid. And all those people whose sins had been passed over in the Old Testament, finally we see God poured out the punishment on Jesus. And then people can say, oh God, not only did you love David and Moses and Abraham, but you're also just in that you, for, you, you, you had a penalty that you were storing up and that was paid. Now the application to our lives the application to our lives. Um, first, the cause of the atonement was not our worthiness. It's all in God. It's in his desire to magnify the excellence of his love and to magnify the excellence of his justice. It is God seeking to glorify his great name, to bring honor to himself, ultimately, we shouldn't be self-centered and say, oh, we were so important that God decided to save us. We should say God decided that he would glorify his love and glorify his justice and show how they could both be satisfied in the atonement. See, there are some people, maybe many in our society, who think, oh, that's not a big deal. God just forgave sins. That's easy. He's a God of mercy and love. But people who think that have no idea of the infinite holiness of God. 
They have no, no idea of God's desire that he be glorified in every inch of his creation, which cannot tolerate unpunished sin in the middle of it and forget it. People who say, oh, it's easy for God to forgive sin. He's a God of mercy. They have no idea of the magnitude of the deep wrath of God against sin, which mars God's creation and dishonors his character and robs him of his glory. People who say, oh, it's easy for God to forgive sin. He's a God of mercy. They have no idea of the pure jealousy of God, which will never cease to seek his own glory in creation. They have no idea of the justice of God, which can only be satisfied when sin is punished. They have no idea of the infinite wisdom of God, whereby sin could be punished and sinners forgiven at the same time. That's why Jesus couldn't die as a baby or as a child and earn our salvation. There had to be a life lived in perfect obedience and then punished in our place. So the, the cause of the atonement is the love and the justice of God. Now what about us? I think there's, there's application for our own lives as well. And the question is, do you, do we reflect both God's love and justice in our lives? I think our society tends to err too much on love without justice. Uh, just thinking some examples that uh, came to mind. Uh, somebody who works at a fast food restaurant and friends come in and, and she gives away food to her friends. Oh, she loves them. Giving away food. But she's robbing her employer. It's not her food to give. She's forgetting that there's fairness and justice and honesty that are required. Or a teacher who gives everybody A's. Oh, I love all my students. I'll give them all A's. But that's not just. That's not what they deserve. It's not what they earned. It's not fair. See, we need to reflect both God's love and justice. Or an employer or a supervisor who gives all excellence in an employee review. Well, nobody's excellent in everything, and surely not all your employees are excellent in everything. Oh, but I love them. Well, so there's also fairness and justice. See, we need to reflect both in our lives. But there are some people who go the other direction, don't they? They're just consumed with justice and rightness and fairness, and that's not right, and they're always criticizing, always judging, always negative. Where's the love? You see, I think the application in our lives is just as God, in all of his actions, reflects the totality of his character. So here in the atonement, he, he, he's satisfying both the need to glorify his love and his justice. So we, in our lives, need to be sure that we are being loving and just in all of our actions. That's the cause of the atonement. Now, what about the necessity of the atonement? Well, let me, I'll stop on the cause for a second. Do you have any interaction on that? Okay. The necessity of the atonement. Did God have to save us? Did God have to save anybody? 
I think we have to say, in some sense, the atonement wasn't absolutely necessary. God didn't have to save anybody, and we see that from the example of the angels. 2 Peter 2.4, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. God created these amazing, intelligent creatures with moral judgment, angels, and some of them sinned, became demons, and he didn't save any of them. Didn't spare the angels when they sinned. And I think that shows us that God could have done the same thing with human beings who sinned. He could have saved zero. And there'd be nobody here in class this morning. Because there'd be nobody saved out of the whole earth, and there wouldn't be a church. God could have done that. He could have let us go our own self-chosen path of rebellion against his commands and saved no one. So it wasn't necessary for God to save anybody. He could have created other creatures who would serve him and love him. But if God decided to save any human beings, then I think there was no other way except for Jesus to die for our sins. Why? A number of verses point to this, that the atonement was necessary if God was going to save any sinners at all. There wasn't any other way. He couldn't just say, well, welcome, come into heaven. Justice wouldn't be satisfied. No punishment for sin. So, Matthew 26, 39, going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The Old Testament background, drinking the cup of God's wrath was a picture of taking, the, of taking into yourself and having God's punishment flow throughout your whole being. And so taking that cup of God's wrath is what Jesus was going to face. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But that prayer, let this cup pass from me, if it be possible, it was it did not come about that it passed from him. There, there wasn't any escape from Jesus going to the cross. Luke 24, 25, Jesus says in 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I think that language indicates that it, was, it would had to happen that way. It was necessary that it happened. Um, uh, let's see, Romans 3, 26, it was to show his righteousness. That is... God put forward Christ to show that he does take sin seriously and it had to be punished. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It looks like, it looks like to me that Jesus had to be God and man made fully like us so that he could bear the penalty, be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary um, for the heavenly things to be purified by the sacrifice of Christ. So, um, so it seems to me that there was no other way than that someone who was a true human being bear the punishment for sin, but one human being couldn't bear the punishment for everyone's sin. I think it had to be someone who was both truly man and truly God who could bear the punishment for everyone's sin. 
So I don't think there was any other way. I don't think there was any other way possible. Once we have human, human beings who are sinful and God wants to save them, no other way possible except, I mean, God could punish us all for our own sins and we go to hell eternally. Or somebody else, and the only person who could do that would be someone who was fully God and fully man to take our punishment. The application, application of this, number one, if the, if the atonement wasn't absolutely necessary, it's good for us to remember God didn't have to save us. Didn't have to save you, didn't have to save me, he didn't have to save anybody. We tend to get a sense of entitlement after we've been in the Christian life for a long time. We tend to think, well, of course, I deserve this salvation or something like that. It's good for us to remember we didn't deserve it. It's of grace. That's, that just has to be in the forefront of our minds. Number two, I think this reminds us there can be no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ. Nobody else died for sins. Nobody else could die for sins, to pay for sins. Nobody in any other religion died for sins. Muhammad didn't. Um, uh, Confucius didn't. Buddha didn't die for sins. None of those people were God and man. They didn't die for sins. Um, but, uh, but Jesus Christ did. Number three, the atonement is not something God did in us, but something God did for us. I'm going to come back to that. But I want to say when we focus on this central doctrine in the whole Bible, it's good to fix in our minds the fact that it is something that happened externally to us. It was a payment that Jesus made for the sins of all those who would be saved, and it was a payment that was accepted by God the Father. That's external to us. It's something that's objective. It's a fact in history. It happened and it's good for us to focus on that rather than just all on our own experience. You know, our own experience is good to talk about and that we've been forgiven and, and, and we've been cleansed and we've been given a new heart and that's all great. But behind it all, we have to anchor ourselves in the fact that there's objective historical reality here. Something happened between the Father and the Son that actually accomplished our salvation. And number four, I didn't put it on the transparency, but I need to put it on the transparency. I don't think we realize the magnitude of our sin that required such a solution. I, is I, I don't know if you're like me, but you tend to go along in your ordinary life and you think everything's fine and I just deserve this kind of life. And, and we need to be reminded that we don't deserve any of the blessings of this life. We deserve punishment for our sin and eternal separation from God and eternal wrath of God. That's what we deserve. And, and our sins, I think it would be healthy for us just to be reminded again and again that this atonement, when we think about Christ dying for us, think about that's for me, that's, that's my sins. And that's how serious the matter of sin is before God. Okay. I, I just, why am I doing this application, application, application? Because I just, oh, it was Norm Wakefield at the retreat at the seminary uh, who gave this talk on, you can't just teach theology. He wasn't talking to me, but he was talking to me. 
can't just teach ideas. You have to teach for life transformation. And uh, so I think I thought, you know what? I think you're right, Norm. I think I've got to put more application in uh, every few minutes here in the lessons. So that's what's happening this morning. Okay, now, we talked about the cause. We talked about the necessity. Now, what about the nature of the atonement? What actually happened in order for our salvation to be gained for us by the work of Christ? Well, there are two parts. I want to talk about, first, Christ's obedience for us, sometimes called his act of obedience. And that is that Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God as our representative. Um, there was another person who was a representative uh, of many to follow, and that was Adam, and God put him in the Garden of Eden. We talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago. Uh, and and uh, Adam uh, represented the human race, but he sinned, and when he sinned, God counted us all as guilty because, God, because Adam was working as our representative. And... Um, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, it says in Romans 5. But now Jesus comes along as a second person to represent all who would be redeemed by him, and he lives a life of obedience in our place, and he's conscious of this through his whole life. So uh, Matthew 3.15, he's going to be baptized by John the Baptist, not because he has any sin of his own to confess, but because he's doing what all the Jewish people should do he is fulfilling all righteousness. He's fulfilling what God expects of them, and God expected them to uh, agree with John the Baptist's teaching. So he says, let it be so now, that is, let me be baptized, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John the Baptist consented and baptized Jesus. But he's doing what all Jews, faithful Jews, should have done. And he followed the sacrifices. He followed the worship uh, requirements at the temple. He did what Psalm 1 says, meditated on God's law day and night. He did uh, what the Ten Commandments said. He, he honored his father and mother. Uh, he loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. Through his entire life, from childhood up until the moment he died, he lived a life of perfect obedience for us. And uh, John 8:29, he can say the astounding sentence that none of us can say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, that is, to God the Father. Through his whole life, he lived a life of perfect obedience. So, Romans 5.19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is, our salvation doesn't just mean our sins are forgiven. It means that God has given us a positive record of obedience, and that is the record of Jesus' whole life counted to our account. Romans, or 1 Corinthians 1.30 uh, God talks about Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God made Jesus to be our righteousness, our record that God looks at when he says, well, how have you done in your life? Well, here's what I've done. I've done, don't look at my record. Look at Jesus' record. Philippians 3, Paul says he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he doesn't want to trust his own obedience, but he has a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul doesn't just say, I'm in Christ and I'm forgiven. That's true, and he talks about that elsewhere. But he doesn't say, I just have forgiveness. He's saying, I have righteousness. That is a positive sense, something of a, a life of obedience counted to his own 
account. It's the righteousness from God. It comes through faith. Now, um, if you stand before God and he says, well, why should I let you into heaven? Do you want to look back at your whole life where the requirement is absolute perfection, never any sin at all? Do you want to have that be what God looks at? Or would you rather have Christ's record of righteousness and say, I've trusted in Jesus, my Savior. Oh God, look at his life and see if it's acceptable. Of course it will be, because he was without sin. So our deep in our hearts, our dependence on something to make us acceptable to God can't be ourselves. Can't be our own hearts. Can't be our own life. Our dependence on God, our dependence on something to make us acceptable in God's sight has to be focused outside ourselves. We're trusting in Jesus, in the perfect life that he lived to be the record that is counted for us. Is that making sense? Number two, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. By imputation, I mean God thinking that it belongs to us. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to Sandy or to Mark is denied by some scholars today. They don't like this idea. Well, go into all sorts of reasons why they don't like it. But in one sense, I can see why people don't like it because... Why don't, why don't people like this idea that the record that God looks at is Jesus' life, Mark? Yeah, yeah, it hurts your pride, doesn't it? Yeah. Can't do it myself. Depend on Christ. And there are other things, too. Who knows why? But N.T. Wright, who has written some good things, some evangelical things, um, and is a high-ranking clergyman in the Church of England now, he says, well, no, you know, we've got to rethink this. We're going to be justified on the basis of the whole life lived, or the complete life lived. Ooh. Doesn't, I mean, that's probably quite popular among people who think of themselves as righteous in the general culture. It's probably quite popular among conservative Jews who think they're trying to earn merit before God. Kind of popular, perhaps among Roman Catholics who think that God's work in us produces an increasingly good character, but we're never justified until we go through this life and through purgatory, and then finally God sees that our life is perfect, and then he justifies us, but it isn't consistent with the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, on the basis of the work of Christ. I forgot your name. Geta? I didn't forget. <laughs> does this fit in with the enemy's plan of keeping us away from God? And Well, I think it's wrong. I don't think that N.T. Wright thinks that. I mean, he, he thinks he's helping us, but I think he's hurting the gospel yeah, very clearly. Yeah. yeah, does the enemy oppose this teaching? Sure, yeah, at, at every place, I'm sure, because it, it's what we need to be saved. And the enemy doesn't want us to believe this, so I'm sure that's it. However, uh, we, uh, having said this, that the record by which we stand before God and say, Lord, 
will you let me into heaven on the basis of Christ's life? That's, that's where we depend on for righteousness. We need to emphasize that. But does that mean it doesn't matter at all what we do? No. No. It does, because there's some other factor that we have to mention too. And that is, we are to imitate Christ's life of, and live in obedience to God's word insofar as he enables us to do so and we are able to do so. Uh, that's what pleases God and that's what brings blessing to our life. Um, it doesn't earn us salvation, but it does bring God's favor on our lives. Of course, Jesus didn't live a whole life of obedience as an example of what we're not supposed to do. Right? He lived an example of what we are supposed to do, and we're supposed to follow in his steps and imitate his life, and, and there is a path of blessing there. So I want to be sure, clear on that. Okay, first. First part of the atonement is Christ's obedience for us. The second part, and this is the part that we tend to be more familiar with, is Christ's sufferings for us. It's sometimes called his passive obedience. His active obedience took his entire strength and all his effort through his whole life to live a faithful life of obedience to God, but then his passive obedience was receiving, in a way that is pleasing to God, the suffering and the hardship that was put on him. His suffering endured for his whole life. I mean, you think about the temptation in the wilderness. That was tough. Going without food for 40 days, being continually assaulted by the, by the enemy, being so hungry at the end that he probably didn't have physical strength enough to crawl out of the wilderness, but angels had to come and minister to him and probably restore his nourishment and strength. There was suffering. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There was suffering much more than we know in the life of Jesus, because we don't know anything from his birth to age 12, and we don't know anything, any details from 12 to 30. But he learned obedience, says the book of Hebrews, through what he suffered, and there was hardship in his life. Probably the loss of his father, for one thing, because we hear nothing about Joseph after Jesus is 12. And probably then the responsibility to care for a family, because he would be the oldest male in the household and probably also other kinds of suffering, living under Roman oppression in that part of the Roman Empire at that time, and who knows what else. But he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, says Isaiah 53. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So that means that the various kinds of sorrow and hardship and suffering and difficulty that we face in some related way anyway, Jesus faced those. He faced them without complaining or grumbling or blaming God or in any other way responding unrighteously. He suffered through his life by living in a fallen world, a world that has sin and that has evil. So he lived a life of, of suffering, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. But that suffering, well, just wait, I see if I have application in here again. God also calls us to some kinds of suffering in this life, in imitation of Christ's life. Not to bear the punishment for sins, because Jesus did that, but that God would be glorified in us in the midst of our suffering, in how we respond to suffering in how we respond to hardship. 
that we would honor God. First Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I don't know anyone who has been completely free from suffering and hardship in this life. Anybody? of various kinds. Relational difficulties, loss of loved ones, financial difficulties, job difficulties, illness, physical illness. And we live in an unbelievably blessed country. Yet, it isn't God's purpose for any of us to leave us completely free from hardship and suffering. It's the path that God has appointed for his children, that there be some suffering that we endure. And through that suffering, the Lord Jesus, who knows suffering, would be near to us, and our love for him would grow deeper. Jesus suffered for his whole life, much more than we will. He calls us to follow his steps. Then Christ's sufferings culminated in the pain of the cross. His sufferings culminated in the pain of the cross. Jesus knew this was going to happen, and there was such an immense burden of sorrow that came over him that he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That is, if it were any heavier, it feels like it would take my life. Remain here and watch with me, asking his disciples, those to whom he was closest, to be with him at that time. I want to point out four aspects of the pain of Christ's sufferings on the cross. One is, and the one that people think about first, is the physical pain and death that were involved with the suffering on the cross. We read over this sentence so easily, Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him. But first century readers who had seen crucifixions would be shocked at that sentence. And they crucified him because they had seen crucifixions. They knew that it was a horrendous kind of punishment. They knew that Roman citizens could not be crucified according to law. It was too horrible. First century writer talks about someone being crucified who was remained alive for a while and who was, quote, drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony. And I'm going to read just a section from my systematic theology book to describe the pain of this death. I don't think we have to say that Jesus suffered more physical pain than anybody has ever suffered, because the Bible doesn't claim that. But I do think that we have to realize it was one of the most horrible forms of execution ever devised by man. And the reason is that a criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow death by suffocation. 
When the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. And after a while, the chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw fresh breath. And so the victim began to suffocate. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet thus giving more natural support to the weight of his body, releasing some of the weight from his arms and enabling his chest cavity to contract more normally so he could breathe. And by pushing himself upward in this way, the criminal could fend off suffocation. But it was extremely painful because it required putting the body's weight on the nails holding the feet and bending the elbows and pulling upward on the nails driven through the wrist and the criminal's back, which had been torn open repeatedly by a previous flogging, would scrape against the wooden cross with each breath. And so Seneca could talk about a crucified man drawing the breath of life amid long drawn-out agony. In 1986, a physician published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association detailing the pain that would have been experienced in death by crucifixion. And the physician, William Edwards, says this. <clears throat> Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing the feet, and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves. Muscle cramps and paresthesias of the outstretched and uplifted arm arms would add to the discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and eventually lead to asphyxia. <clears throat> in the ancient world, in some cases, crucified men would survive for several days, nearly suffocating, but not quite dying. That was why the executioners would sometimes break the legs of a criminal so that death would come quickly, as we see in John 19, 31 to 33, since it was the day of preparation. In order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken <clears throat> and they might be taken away. <clears throat> then the criminal couldn't push up his body and able to get, get a breath anymore. He would suffocate. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So there's the pain of physical pain and death. The second is the pain of bearing sin. More awful <clears throat> than the physical suffering that Jesus endured was the psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. Um, Jesus was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. The thought of sin contradicted everything in his character. He instinctively rebelled against evil more than we do. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself the sins of those who would someday be saved. All that he hated most deeply was poured out upon him. There's a background to this in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices 
of Leviticus. There's one example in Leviticus 4 where uh, the, the priest brings the bull who's going to be sacrificed to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. It's a picture of placing the sins that were going to be punished on this animal, this bull, and then the bull would be put to death. Now, being put to death was one aspect of it, but being separated from the presence of God was another aspect, and it wasn't represented in one animal, but in two, because there's, on the Day of the Atonement, well, there's both the killing of the animal and then taking one away. Well, here Leviticus 16:15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. So there's the death of the animal, but then there's another animal, and here in verse 21, the live goat, Aaron brings before the tent of meeting, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Now, you can't really put your sins on the head of a goat. It doesn't, doesn't work. But it's Aaron putting his hands on that and then, and then saying, Lord, we have sinned in this way, we have sinned in this way, we have dishonored your name, we have not loved our neighbors as we ought, we have not honored our fathers and mothers, we have, we have been dishonest, we have, and many other sins. And then he would confess them, and then the goat is sent away from the presence of the Lord. So there's a picture, one, of a life being given, and two, of being separated from the presence of God. Now, this, I, I don't know, and I don't know if anybody knows, and I don't know if we ever will be able to know exactly how this happened or what it means. But again and again, the Bible says that God put on Christ our sins. He thought of our sins as belonging to Christ. And so Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid it on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Christ to be sin. Him who knew no sin. Christ, he who knew no sin. He made him to be sin for us, to be thought of as sin, regarded as sin for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ became a curse for us. Hebrews 9.28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, somehow the sins were placed on him. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Tree instead of cross being used there just because of it ties to the Old Testament imagery of someone being crucified on a piece of wood or tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that's number two. The pain of the cross included bearing of our sin. And I... I don't, I, don't, I don't think we have any sense of what that is. It, it hasn't happened to us. We know what it's like to feel guilty for our own sin. Multiply that by, by millions. I, we know how awful it is. Just to know that we've done something wrong, we stand before God as guilty, but just multiply that by, by millions and millions and millions. And that's put on Jesus. Tim. Ah, okay. The scapegoat is someone who, yeah, okay, who takes those sins away, bears the sins for us. Third, there's the pain of abandonment. That is, um, 
Jesus was abandoned by his disciples. Matthew 23:56. all the disciples left him and fled and then was abandoned. That is, the, the fellowship of, that he had known of God the Father was removed from him. And so he cries out, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are some of the most puzzling words in the entire Bible. In some sense, Jesus had to be cut off from the favor of the Father and the sweet fellowship with the Father that had been his eternally because he was bearing the sins of his people and bearing the wrath of God that was due to their sin. Now Jesus had, he was quoting Psalm 22.1 and he did have the remainder of the psalm in mind which leads on to a cry of victory at the end. And he expresses faith in that he still calls God my God. And surely he knows why he is dying because this is the purpose of his coming to earth. And he kept saying, the Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. And he taught on this. So he knows why he is dying, but the psalmist whom he quotes was crying out to God for help, but God did not answer. And I think that that's the right context in which to understand this. Jesus, as a man, had been suffering and bearing the pain of the cross and the pain of of bearing our sins and the pain of abandonment from God and the pain of the wrath of God for hour after hour after hour and God did not answer. And as a man, Jesus must not have understood beforehand the immensity and duration of his suffering until it was actually happening. But beyond that, I think there's a mystery here that, that I do not understand. I do not understand. But it indicates that there was that the God the Father turned his face from him. You who have purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. And I think that's a picture of the, 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 the fellowship and joy and delight that had been eternally present between the Father and the Son that had never begun, that always was. That there was some hindrance of that as the wrath of the Father was poured out instead on the Son. So that leads us to point four. The, the most painful and most difficult part of all of the suffering of the cross was bearing the wrath of God. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And four times in key passages, the Bible says that Jesus was a propitiation. He bore our sins. So Romans 3.25, propitiation by his blood. Hebrews 2.17, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. The Greek word Hilasterion in Romans 3.25 and the related words in these other passages. 1 John 2.2, he's the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does this mean? It means that the anger of God, the just and holy anger of God, against Adam and Eve's sin, and against Cain and Abel's sin, and against Noah's sin, and Noah's wife's sin, and Noah's children and their wives' sin, and against the sins of Abraham and Moses and, and David and all who had sinned that were forgiven, that that wrath was poured out on the Father. We have a tiny, tiny, tiny experience of what it is to face the personal wrath from another person 
when we know we've done wrong and someone is angry at us, perhaps a parent, perhaps an employer, perhaps an officer of the law, and we feel that other person's anger bearing into us and there's nothing we can do because it's been deserved. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult situation to face, to face someone's wrath. But here we have the wrath of the infinitely holy God that was justly due for the sins of millions upon millions of people poured out on the sun hour after hour after hour for our sake. Wave after wave. And he does not know how long it will go on. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, Jesus senses that it is done. That he has borne the wrath of God against our sins. And his suffering is coming to an end. And he cries out and says, It is finished. That for us is a cross. That's words of triumph and victory because that was the wrath that I deserved. And it's all taken care of. It's all done. It's finished. It's gone. He laid down his life of his own accord. John 10, 17. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. And the Father was satisfied with the payment of the penalty for sin and the giving up of the life of his son. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Isaiah 53, 11. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sin of many. Well, that is the pain of the atonement and the benefit to us. There's no wrath of God left to face. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for you or for me. Okay, I... I'm at the end. But I want to say, I was going to get this far today. I... Can you remember comments or questions? I'll, I'll quickly go through this at the beginning of class next week, and and uh, let's come back. But let's sing this. Should we do this? Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. Lord, how good it is for us to be at the cross, at the foot of the cross, to know your love for us to know your great sacrifice for us, to know your great victory over sin and condemnation, to know that it is finished. All the penalty for our sin is paid. Lord, how free we feel. How grateful. And how humbled we feel, Lord, that for our sake you have to endure this. Lord, keep us, us conscious of our sins and the hatefulness of and the greatness of your salvation and your greatness and your glory forever and ever. Amen. See you next week.